Welcome everybody to another episode of the Safety Third Podcast. I'm Eric Reynolds, your host here, and I've got Stephen Marks as well joining me. Hey, Stephen. Good morning, Eric. How are you? I'm pretty good. It's a rainy day here in Keller, and I think you said you're down in Austin this morning. I'm down in Austin, Texas, and it is a rainy, cold day as well here. Yeah. What are you down there for? Uh, court appearance or something, or what's going on? Nope, not that lucky. Uh, I'm down here for a colleague's wedding. I wouldn't say we're friends, probably just colleagues. Yeah. Okay. I think I know who that colleague is, so that's. Uh, I agree. I don't know about the friendship part. So <clears throat> today we have a special friend, though, joining us uh, from uh, all the way across the pond over in uh, Germany. We have a, a, a colleague that we met back at the TV Rhineland uh, Functional Safety and Cybersecurity Symposium that was in Köln, uh, Germany. Uh, his name is Marco Knudler, which I think I mispronounced his name. I practiced it right before we started, and he said I got it pretty close, but now I think I've butchered it. Marco, what do, what do you think? How did I how did I do that, Tom? Yeah, it was still good, and I think there will be room for improvement at least. And, <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for, for having me. As you said, across the pond, actually, the weather forecast for our region here in Germany, in near Cologne, is uh, snow and ice so um driving safely is uh, one of the mandatories right now here in winter Mm -hmm. time yeah snow is one thing but ice is much more difficult to drive in of course um i actually wonder uh what uh these autonomous vehicles do in ice conditions i wonder how they handle that corner case yeah, uh, one of the many interesting questions when talking automation up to the level of autonomy, right? So possibly, I, I, I suppose it's a question of what you have learned, what you have been taught could be handled, and other conditions possibly not. So depending on, uh, for example, where we would drive the autonomous vehicle for training, either in Texas or in Germany, it would learn different things and possibly it could handle different situations later on. That's right. That's right. And that's the difficulty. It's not like you uh, set a, a logic system and then it stays the same. When you have a learning system, it changes over time. It's difficult to understand how it's going to change and whether it's going to learn some bad habits. Right. So it's a lot like, a lot like people, I think. In Texas, it would probably learn some pretty bad habits with the weather here compared to compared to Germany. If it was just training on Texas weather and then goes to Germany, it probably wouldn't do too well. Yeah, that's true. We don't have much snow and ice usually here. Maybe one day, one day a year. <clears throat> but so, Marco, um, uh, you're joining us to uh, talk with us specifically about, uh, I guess, a little bit of a challenge to the title of our podcast, which is Safety Third. Um, as you know, you've been working in safety for some time. Uh, most people say safety first. And so when we met uh, on the Rhine River, I think, um, it was kind of an interesting point of conversation. So I, I wanted to talk with you some about that today and get your perspective. Of course, to explain, um, we picked the title Safety Third, number one, because it's a little bit provocative, I think, a little bit funny. But then... Also, because I really do take the position that safety must come third. And I'll explain what I mean by that. The first thing that you have to consider is you have some problem that you want to solve. 
And so you have to figure out if you can technically do it. Can you technically find a way to engineer a system to solve this problem? And if you're able to do that first, then you can proceed. And then the second piece is, can you afford to pay for the system? Can it be, can it be funded? Can you find a way to make it financially successful and sustainable? And it, that doesn't matter if you're a for-profit company or a, or a nonprofit or a government or an NGO or something. Someone has to pay for everything, right? So that's the second question. And then in my opinion, the third question is, can you do it safely? And it's an, a, a gating decision. So you have to actually be able to do it safety to ethically move forward with the process. So that's a little bit of the reasoning behind safety third. But I know you've also been working uh, for some time in safety. Uh, and you've also, I'm sure, encountered times when people are trying to innovate in the safety space or in a safety application and have perhaps come up against some roadblocks. So I wanted to talk with you about that some today. Uh, mm -hmm. but, for, but first, before we do, I want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, and I wanted to hear a little bit about your background. So if I could, um, could I ask, let's start from the beginning. Um, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, sure. Uh, I would be glad to tell you. So actually, uh, I'm now 42 years old. Uh, I was born in a small city near Cologne, um, grew up and then also um, studied uh, in Germany uh, with uh, finally getting my what we call Diplom Ingenieur, so a university degree in engineering uh, with a mayor in uh, automation. Um, uh, I visited a university in the rural area. And um, yeah, so afterwards I had some time working internationally um, in, but always in, in, the, in the relation, in a close relation to the process industry. So which means chemicals and all of that stuff, refineries. And uh, as you said, safety first is, is something that of course uh, rings a bell for somebody working in the process industry. I think all over the world, because this is what you learn from, from your colleagues, this is what you learn from your education and, and your everyday training. So this is, I think, what, what builds the, the, the interesting spectrum of, of perspectives you can take in, in terms of safety and then uh, innovation, uh, which we can cover today. Um, and yeah, so, so actually being an automation engineer with a strong passion for safety, functional safety especially, also uh, somehow influences my private life actually as my wife and my three kids could tell you um, of course doing safety as a profession for some years gives you some kind of habits and perspectives of looking even at everyday things right for example uh, we have a joke when when talking with automation engineers in the process industries like how would you recognize somebody being an automation engineer in the process in the streets he's grabbing or she's grabbing the handrails on the stairs it has nothing to do with, with automation, but at least it's, it's part of the safety culture also here in our, our chemical side that statistically speaking, uh, walking the stairs is something most of the dangerous things you could do in, in your everyday working life and also, of course, in private life. So I was teaching my kids to grab the handrail <laughs> as soon as they could walk. So, um, yeah, I think this, this is somehow something that, that, that lives in me in the meantime and also for example uh, gives me the passion to to work as an associate lecturer for functional safety in uh, 
some universities of applied science in Germany and uh, work in the, those working committees and, and, and normative uh, committees um, that finally came up with that idea of, of the normative roadmap for AI that, that was one of our ideas that we could talk today. Yes, definitely. I, I want to get to that normative roadmap to AI because it's a big problem everybody's working on. You know, there's, of course, ChatGPT just debuted officially publicly and people are using it, trying to figure out how to uh, make it write their essays for school for them or how to make it design code for them or what have you. There's lots of things going on. It's a big buzzword uh, in the industry now, but I think there's also real capability, real a real place for um, additional capability in the safety space by using AI ML. Um, but the question is, how do we know that we can trust it and how we know we can keep trusting it? So I think the normative approach that you're talking about, I want to get to that. But before we do, I want to I want to ask you about something that you just brought up that I think is unique to the process sector. Uh, now, I didn't come out of the process sector per se, but I worked midstream gas, natural gas transmission and distribution mm -hmm. for, for quite some time. So it's similar, similar thing. Um, IEC 61511 is the functional safety standard for that, for that particular application. But uh, the, mm -hmm. the, thing, the term that you brought up was safety culture. And I see safety culture in the process sector probably more than I've seen it in other industries. I've also worked aerospace, I've worked robotics, I've worked other things. And they'll talk about safety, but it's different in the process sector. So I wonder if you might be able to talk a little bit about safety culture and what it is and, and um, how, it, how it plays out in people's day-to-day -day lives. Sure, actually, yeah, as I said, it, it is a safety culture because it, it's part of the kind of embedded culture working culture but probably uh working for for decades in the process industry it becomes kind of a living culture actually because uh of course uh with with some incidents showing that unfortunately the process industry has a kind of quite specific risk profile actually there there's just a few incidents happening uh this is for me an evidence that we're doing a really good job in safety but of course in the awareness of if something happens there's a quite large potential in those 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 chemical operations and and processes there that something could be quite huge as an impact also for example not only on the workforce but also on on the neighborhood for example or the, the environment so as soon as you start entering the, the field of process safety and process the process industry as such it's part of the everyday or every night culture to to be aware of risk and on the other hand as i said with with grabbing the, the the handrail when walking the stairs it's also evaluating risks and even down to the everyday risk that that probably people take more or less unconsciously but making that aware um and and making people aware so that they at least do what they can not uh be, being uh, of, of the opinion that the risk would be zero, but at least it is minimized and, and, and mitigated wherever you, you can do that. So I think this is this is actually uh, quite possibly, uh, if not unique, at least it's quite outstanding uh, for, for the process industry. Also in, in, in a contrast to the pictures you might see sometimes in newspapers or the, or the media 
if something happens, although this is a quite rare case. Right. I think um, that's a good point. I mean, my experience in that industry is that most days start off with the safety briefing um, for everyone that's there. And you may mm -hmm. have safety yeah. moments and even off office workers, you may start off the meeting with a safety reminder about something like you did today uh, when we first got together talking about driving on icy roads. And, yeah. and so it just yeah. builds safety into every piece of what you're doing. And I think I could be wrong, but I think the process sector has grabbed onto that because the biggest enemy in the process sector is complacency, I think. Because as you said, these events that happen, they are low frequency, but very high consequence events. So the, most of the time, the facility runs as it should. But very rarely do you have time when it gets out of its safe state. But when you do, it, the, the, the results are catastrophic. Um, Probably one of the most famous ones is Bunsfield in the UK, which really kind of propelled functional safety in the process sector in a new way, I think, where, you know, you just have a, a continuing operation for decades, for a long time, and then eventually one day you slip, you slip outside of it and you have terrible ca catastrophe. Same thing with, you know, many different examples all around. So I think it's really interesting to see how safety culture develops differently in different industries. And I think process, the process sector has really done a good job. Unfortunately, the news doesn't show every time there's not an yeah. accident, right? They only show yeah. when there is one. As they say, bad news are good news, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then so, so all, all the, let's say, uh, more, more than 364 days a year that, that we are fine with operations, they make no news. but. As such, uh, even smaller events that, for example, could could alert the neighborhood are are something that are is reported. Nevertheless, even that we take as a kind of impulse to be even better. So, and this is also, I think, part of the safety culture. Starting with somewhere you think you you know you should start, but always learning and and taking the feedback from from anywhere you can get it. And uh, yeah, keeping keeping safety alive, as you said, with the safety moments at the morning, any kind of further uh, impulses that you can give people by any kind of information that is in the office, out of the office, on the street, wherever. Uh, Eric and Marco, I'd love to hear y'all's views on how detrimental those low frequency and high consequence events could be for obviously human lives, but there's so much, you know, from a business standpoint, the public image of a company, the financial standpoint of, you know, uh, repairs and, and lawsuits and all that, it, the safety culture just impacts, you know, human lives is the most important, but so many parts of a business too, right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, we are not mixing that when evaluating and assessing risk. But at least uh, I know uh, a lot of companies and, and, and methodologies that adapt to that, that have certain, let's say, perspectives or even dimensions of risk, which is, of course, uh, safety, health and environment as such. But then also from, as you said, uh, economic damage up to the, let's say, kind of kind of public view of the, the company, there's also a kind of dimension that, that you could rate, for example, uh, safety functions uh, because just of that dimension. So it's, it's not that you would think there would be a huge damage, but at least 
even yeah demonstrating uh, for example with with flare activities that there is something not in in a normal range of the operation could motivate to even get further in 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 the measures you take in order to yeah protect the yeah the, the good name of of the company because any kind of smaller incident could be uh, taken an influence that is somehow perhaps even kind of feeling unfair because nobody uh, rewards you with the with the safe operation of all the other time but yeah that's let's say part of the game and and this is what we what we uh, take care of even in in risk assessment and possibly taking further measures uh, upon the the basic measures we're taking because of environmental protection and so on yeah it's sort of like a referee in sports right they don't get they don't get uh rewards for being good but everyone hates them when they're when they make a bad call (laughs) yeah that's a good point i think um it is another main difference between the process sector and other industries where you have to worry about safety because the consequences aren't just one person getting hurt or or perhaps uh, uh, a fatality they're an entire perhaps village or town or city or location being impacted for decades in an environmental perspective. Um, you can think of, you could probably think of many examples uh, of that uh, and companies that had to respond to that. You know, what I think is interesting is sometimes the, you would think that it would cause a lot of brand damage to the company, but a, it seems like a lot of time it doesn't. I mean, like for instance, I don't mean to cause any trouble for anyone, but if you think of probably the most famous process sector uh, disaster would be, um, I would say the Deepwater Horizon, which was in the Gulf of Mexico off of Texas here and put oil into the uh, Gulf for 80 days. And, you know, many people were, were killed in that, right? Well, the companies that were responsible for that, they're still around, they're still working and they're still doing things and, and they're still profitable as far as I can see. So, um, I think you're, you're right, Stephen, there are, there is, um, an environmental impact. There is a business impact. Um, but it doesn't always work the, the way that I would expect. And I'm not making a judgment on whether it's good or bad or indifferent, but it's just the realities of things you have to take into account. Um, it does impact legislation as well, or, or regulations or laws that are made. Um, and so the, the, really the, the, the process sector more than any other seems to be one where, uh, incidents drive regulation. So if you have a certain kind of incident, then everyone says, how do we make sure this particular kind of incident doesn't happen again? And so you legislate around this, this kind of corner case, hoping that it'll help other corner cases as well. And maybe that helps us, Marco, to transition a little into this normative path for AI and safety systems. So uh, can you yeah. give us... I'm quite sure it does, because uh, one of the the, the, the influencing, uh, let's say, conditions we have in, in Europe is that there is a European directive that is actually named like the city where we had, uh, it's decades uh, ago, we are where we had a, a, a chemical incident. You, you know the, the Italian city of Seveso near Milano? I've never been, but I have heard of it, yes. Because 
actually the the European directive that we have to follow in in, in the process industry is the Seviso directive, and it's it's meant for let's say any kind of of operations that could cause harm. Uh, let's say um, with 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 a broader range than, for example, just the few people working around the the machine, but actually like you described the the risk profile for the process industry. So and yeah, and this is is one of the the examples where regulation is at least setting certain conditions. I wouldn't call them uh, limits necessarily, but but conditions with which give you a kind of framework to operate, of course, to work or even to innovate. So um, yeah, this this is this is a quite nice bridge we can build there. Yes, I think so. So um, we started the podcast off talking about uh, this normative path. So. Um, I think, could you bring us up to speed on how that uh, process is going and where it is now and what the goals uh, that uh, might be of that process? Uh, yeah, you're referring to the, the normative roadmap and in the second edition we did on, on uh, artificial intelligence in Germany, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, where I want to start is like just describing a little about regulation in Europe or especially in Germany, because you might have heard or even experienced that uh, we in Germany, we are quite fond of regulations and normative actions. Um, there, there, there's even an, uh, an, an abbreviation, DIN. You have ever heard of DIN? Yes, yes. So, so it's, it's the, the German... Uh, yeah, normative institute. Um, on the other hand, it has uh, everyday life uh, influence. Like for example, paper sizes in Germany, they are DIN, DIN A1, DIN A2, DIN A3. So it, regulations and, and, and normative uh, directives are anywhere. And they're even giving you yeah, practical uh, things to handle in, in everyday life. So they help. This is this is at least often the, the the perception of regulations, where otherwise people might think they are limiting, they are killing innovation, for example. And so I think th this is why someone naturally the idea of trying to combine innovation and regulation in terms of having um, European directives and also this this German normative roadmap is. Um, is, is trying to bring something together that could be like 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 fire and ice but the idea is as we are so fond of of regulations and directives we are taking the approach to well possibly creating an environment to innovate within accepted limits or an accepted corridor of of regulations or or normative directives um could help because um at least you're setting a kind of path that is still open for innovation, but sets certain uh, boundaries that could even, for example, limit economic risk when when um, innovating, when developing, researching. Uh, and um, on the other hand, um, helping especially uh, our, our, our field of safety in order to come up with ideas that uh, are not introducing new risks, but possibly even helping creating new means of risk reduction in, in certain applications. So, and this is what actually the, um, the goal of, of the normative roadmap for, for AI regulation uh, is, 
that uh, for certain fields of application or even some some basic understandings of for example even ethics for example um, there is a document that could be a common guideline for any kind of normative approaches or also for research and development in order to to create a a landscape, uh, possibly even a, an, a culture that that uh, makes it possible to, um, yeah, create innovation while being safe or even like being trustworthy, which is one of the keywords possibly trustworthiness in in the AI domain. Yes, I think that that makes total sense. So, um, if I can go back to your example of when you talked about. Uh, the DIN, the DIN, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you open up any control uh, cabinet, right? And then uh, probably mounted, everything is mounted to the, to the walls of that cabinet, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and probably what they're mounted on is something that we call a, a, a DIN rail, right? Or we call it a DIN rail here, right? And I think that's yeah. where it comes from, right? It's the yeah. standardized version. And the world over, we use that. Uh, there are probably other things out there, but it's very common to use that. And that standardization allows for other people to manufacture things in a way that they know it will fit everywhere around the world. You can just mount straight to that thing. So I think that's a good example that you've brought up there of ways that you can use standardization to foster more innovation. Because without that, everyone have to have a, well, uh, quite frankly, it's like uh, phone chargers now, right? Uh, there's a different yeah. adapter for everyone. I think uh, the EU just passed a law that you have to use uh, the same charger type or something for all phones. Yeah, true. Another example of, of this uh, sometimes hated uh, European directives or, or, or this, this regulations that we have in Europe. But again, something that, that from another perspective makes total sense from from an uh, economic point of view possibly from uh, uh, environmental point of view regarding uh, a kind of, of, of well um, awareness of limited resources that you put into those those um, multiple choices of, of, of charger cables for example and yeah possibly the same is true for for a lot of standardization activities it takes some energy it sometimes puts some limits on the other hand it could free resources that you would otherwise uh, invest into uh, making things fit so that you could put hopefully innovations on top of the standardized basics uh, you're sure that will work right that's exactly right so so then this normative approach to the use of ai is really trying to provide that trellis or that framework as it was so that other people can innovate on top of it and make sure that it's working in a standardized way, but not prescribing exactly how it needs to work. No, it's not prescribing. It's, it's more or less, I think it identifying a kind of framework that, that could be, uh, for example, AI made in Germany. That is one of the, the, let's say, economically speaking visions, of course, that, there would be something like trustworthiness, transparency. Um, so some kind of, of, of um, yeah, keywords that, that are obviously quite important in a landscape of, of regulations on the one hand, but also especially of people that are somehow used to uh, or even expecting 
things to be somehow yeah, con under control, even by regulations or by also, for example, as we met with, with on the TIF symposium, also by third party organizations that have a certain guideline on how to assess and certify um, everyday uh, things of your life or especially, of course, any kind of equipment and assets that are in operation in, for example, machineries, uh, automotives, or, of course, the process industry. And so I think this, this is actually a quite interesting approach also to something quite innovative and new and, and, and not easy to get like artificial intelligence, at least thinking about um, certain attributes that, that AI methodologies and, and techniques and, and solid products that would enter the market would want to have or have to have in order to fulfill certain requirements for different applications. And um, what is quite interesting is this is not just from the safety perspective, like um, starting with what we call Sicherheit in Germany, uh, it could have different meanings. Uh, the most obvious is safety or security. So uh, talking about security in, in terms of information technology or talking about safety for people or health or the environment is something different. So we're differing, uh, we have different perspectives on that from, from the normative point of view. Um, and it's also about um, certain aspects like uh, explainability, transparency, trustworthiness, so that there is a certain framework differing in applications from like, for example, financial uh, sector over uh, medical products up to like, for example, industrial automation, the process industry, where we take certain views on yeah, how important is safety, how important is security, or is there even some uh, ethical point of view that should, you should take in terms of artificial intelligence. So it's a quite uh, almost 360 degrees uh, perspective uh, the the normative roadmap tries to 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 shade on on the on the topic of artificial intelligence sure so so if i can understand ask some questions to understand so does the normative framework provide questions that you should be asking or does it provide ways that you should be doing things it's i think um a catalog of of um at least um, possible content for either research or also normative actions. So at least a kind of catalog that is now put into action step by step in order to further discuss, especially also in European or international committees in order to, let's say, get a common understanding on uh, what should be a framework of, of artificial intelligence uh, technologies and, and their methodologies so that um, finally in standardization and also in research and development, the details could be worked out. So it's nothing that is uh, on, on the same level like a regulation, but at least it's identifying certain things that have to be done either in research and development because we wouldn't know right now or on the other end in, in normative committees or possibly even in, in, in legislative action, so that there is uh, yeah, a combination of, of actions taken in order to put that framework uh, that yeah, makes it possible to have this trustworthy, transparent, but still hopefully ready to go approach to AI or 
any kind of products that have embedded AI uh, within them. Exactly. So it so it truly is a roadmap. It says it declares a desired end state of, as you said, explainability, transparency, uh, a couple other things that you mentioned. It is, but it doesn't. But it says here's what different parts, academia, industry, regulatory standards writing committees. Here's the the. It's telling them all we need you to go forward on this roadmap so that we can all figure out how to get to this desired end state. Is that a good approximation of what it is? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's 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 also getting a kind of kickoff meeting soon now at the end of January, so that actually everybody involved in those those fields of of, of um, actions that that you just mentioned, like academics or uh, actually practically working with with AI or developing product, up to setting the normative framework everybody is like kicking off of hopefully orchestrated action based on the the second edition of the uh roadmap yeah right that's very good i mean you you have to have some sort of i guess there's two ways to go about it one is uh, you wait for uh the community the industry to develop ways and then you that just becomes the way that you do it right and the other way is to be intentional about fostering a safety culture in that application area of AI so that you're, uh, you're guiding that process a little more, right? One is, I guess, strictly a natural selection type process, and the other one is mm. more, direct, more directed. Um, yeah, and it's, I think it's also more inclusive, right? So, so you're not mm-hmm. telling everybody, try your best and something will let's say come out as a kind of product and the the rules of fitness will determine whether it's good or not that good for the market for safety for anything but at least the the intention is to bring let's say almost everybody from a lot of corners of 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 of, of application fields together to at least try to think about a kind of inclusive common approach that could be helping um fulfilling regulative um demands or requirements but on the other hand opening up doors to cooperate and and foster innovation in those frameworks uh, that 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 is defined by by regulations or by the normative uh, uh, frameworks i feel like this is contrary to standards in the past i feel like most standards are playing catch-up and are rather restrictive well, what you're talking about, Marco, is is looking forward and and rather inclusive uh, and drawing this roadmap out roadmap out for people. Yeah, at least that's 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 I think the approach I like with that. And on the other hand, it's also facing uh, the situation that uh, talking about uh, European directives, uh, there is also already a European at least draft of a directive regulating AI. So, so it's it's somehow a kind of ping pong game between there is regulation activities going on, and on the other hand, trying to be proactive and bringing people together is is something that is uh, interacting with with that uh, regulative actions already taken, um, in the in the full awareness that we can never be complete, uh, I think, but at least doing our very best to to foster a climate that is not limiting innovation and on the other hand not uh, taking compromises on safety for example or any other 
further dimensions that 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 you could take on privacy or or anything else that is could be affected by by introducing ai in a large scale in in very different sectors of the industry or even everyday life yeah i think that makes good sense i think um one of the things that i've noticed too we've done some work with uh, european directives and customers taking products under the european union and other things like that and the regulatory frameworks that are set up uh in the Europe are take a fundamentally different approach than those in the U S. Uh, so the U S I think famously, well, I guess I'll say it this way. I think 97% of the lawyers on the planet are in the United States. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so we, we, we are set up as a litigious culture. And so on the one hand, it allows you to innovate and do things, um, and then we handle things after they happen. The, the, mm. the, th- the thing that curbs people from doing negligent or, or malicious things is the fact that they could be sued by someone. Mm. Whereas, whereas my understanding of the European system is they'll publish laws, directives, regulations that will declare the bounds of what you can do and what you must do. Um, and, and so one is an opera. Uh, no, I won't say a priori. That sounds too uh, philosophical. And I think I'm using it incorrectly. One is a before the, before you put something on the market, there's already regulation there that describes how it should behave. And the other one is put something on and then we'll decide whether it's good or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't necessarily think either one is better or worse than the other. They're just different. Um, I will say though, that, my understanding is that uh, Germany particularly has been leading the world in what I'll call sensible regulation of things. So uh, for instance, privacy laws and other things about your personal data. I think the U.S. is following a lot of the uh, GDPR and other things or, 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 or taking cues from that to, to set up their own way of, of handling personal data and other things like that. So I, I think we get the benefit of the thought that uh, the Europeans put into regulation. And then I guess we get to decide whether it's going to fit into our system as well. So um, it, yeah. it's good to get both, both perspectives. Yeah, the, the both perspectives are, I think, what, what, what is beneficial to, to at least, let's say, both the sides of the pond, as you said at the beginning. Because, of course, we might have a tendency to over-regulate things sometime. But on the other end, for me, as a, as a, as a p- person responsible for at least part of the, 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 the plant safety, uh, it, it's at least often a, a relief to know there is this, this, this safety first and also a kind of guideline approach on safety that at least gives you some path to walk where you would at least expect if you follow that path, you should be okay. So you wouldn't have to innovate or research your own path and, and do the same mistake like other people would have done already. But instead sit down sometimes longer than, than shorter days or, or a month, but at least write down something that is a guideline for everybody. And uh, yeah, in, in the hope and in the expectation that even that, boring it sounds could spark innovation at least give it a kind of direction that uh, uh yeah 
people can can work upon and and, and trust also somehow in in that framework that gives them a a corridor that limits innovation on the one hand but on the other hand makes it quite uh yeah, efficient or effective uh, on, on on what finally a solution would look like that is also compliant with any kind of safety approaches and, and the requirements that are embedded in regulations directives and so on and finally ends up with hopefully uh, a trustworthy product that is also accepted by any kind of user be it a professional user or an everyday person yes i think so exactly the, the the other thing i'll say is you cannot have innovation without regulation because you can innovate and create a brand new thing but if people don't trust it no one is going to allow it in their facility or allow it in their town or in their home right so you have to have some method to trust it. And, I, and that's where these regulations, third-party certification things come in. So we work with um, many startups as well who have great ideas. Um, and I especially love the ones that are people um, fresh out of school or fresh out of graduate school. And they're, they've got this wonderful idea and they've figured out a way to make it work. Uh, but they've never before considered a regulatory strategy or a certification approach for their home market, whether it's in the US or in the EU or elsewhere, and then globally as well. And mm. so they've got this great idea, but then it's blocked by not being able to fit into a regulatory framework. Uh, and so, uh, you know, innovation is wonderful and necessary, but we also need innovation in regulations so that we can foster that. And I think this roadmap is a great example uh, of that attempt to do that sort of thing. There'll be starts and stops and trials and errors in it over time. Um, but I think it's a good way forward. Yeah, I agree. And uh, um, even if I have a, quite, quite a solid example on that, even if a product is making it into the market, but but finally the end user, like, like process industry end users especially, end up um, let's say bumping against the, the the limits the rules that set you then you would possibly end up retrofitting safety like mm -hmm. thinking possibly safety third or safety at the fourth place or anything so that finally just be in, in you're, you're you're shortly before starting up a system or for example starting working with your autonomous robot colleague but then ending up uh taking an assessment on risk and machinery safety, for example, and, and, and taking care of the documentation. And in, in one solid example, for example, ending up retrofitting emergency stops or anything else, procedures, operating procedures, in order to, to comply to certain uh, safety aspects of guidelines, uh, because they are not embedded in the product. They are not part of the design process and, and, and uh, therefore, uh, an end user, let's say, either uh, takes the pain and retrofits or just doesn't do and, and, and doesn't uh, take the product and possible benefits the product could do to your uh, application. So uh, even that for, from an end user is, uh, perspective is motivating me also to work on, on, for example, this roadmap in order to help people innovate that are um, responsible of the product design hopefully safety embedded. So for me as an end user, 
taking those innovative products and applying them in my working environment should be easier and also should not make it um, necessary to do retrofits in order to even be able and be allowed to use those products. So, for example, with those uh, autonomous colleagues uh, we tried, um, we finally ended up uh, retrofitting emergency stops, for example, because uh, any kind of machine in Europe has to have a kind of emergency stop. And let's say Spot didn't have it. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, we ended up in, in some uh, use cases to... to uh, uh, clear the way uh, downstairs because in the manual there was a, a paragraph stating that if it falls with kind of 30 kilograms of weight it could hurt people so finally people ended up clearing the way for the autonomous colleague instead of the autonomous colleague helping people in their working situation so all this this kind of examples uh, yeah, give me the motivation to to work with people developing innovative products so that finally end users and uh, also the, the the producers work together to to yeah fit the needs, uh, taking the innovative part but also taking the regulative part into account. I think you're absolutely right. So you're what what you've hit on is there's some threshold beyond which the end user will not accommodate your system and they'll just decide not to use it, right? If you have to completely rework the layout of your facility so that you can bring in this thing that's supposed to help you, eventually it becomes not economically feasible, not, not, not an option for you. So designing a product with safety and compliance in mind becomes a market differentiator then. Because yeah. now if you, if you have a robot that already has that and they don't have to do all those pieces, they're willing to actually pay more for that because of the less impact to operations and startup and ongoing maintenance procedures and all those sorts of things. So I think we're turning a point in the industry where safety is starting to be seen as a, I guess it sounds crude to say, but as, as a profit center, right? As a way to say, yes, this is a, this is the way to better business success is to create success, uh, safe systems. And I think that's where we want to go. Yeah, totally agree. Because finally, I think it's also taking a broader perspective on a product life cycle, for example, taking the end user's perspective into account and taking the, 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 the broader perspective in order to finally know what is really adding value during the, the whole life cycle of uh, designing the product, but also taking a close look at how is it finally applied and under which circumstances, which means uh, also the, the regulative framework that end users have to take care of. Well, very good. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our scheduled time today. I'd be happy to talk more, but um, I do want to be respectful of your time. So one last thing that I'd like to ask you, Marco, um, you know, um, you're uh, located in Cologne right now, I believe, right? Yeah, in I'm Cologne. in Cologne right now. Yeah. Right. So perhaps if you wanted to uh, say something to your uh, German-speaking colleagues, or if you want to try to get Stephen to say something to your German-speaking colleagues, maybe that would be more interesting to hear. I know he's been practicing his German since he was there. Have you been practicing, Stephen? I have not been practicing my German, but uh, <laughs> I'd rather hear Marco say something accurately. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, taking into account that with all those discussions around artificial intelligence, I feel that we as humans are still in the loop, creating uh, regulative approaches or even teaching AI. I think, uh, yeah, greeting humans and, and taking care of humans is quite important. And uh, for, for our everyday working life, uh, we often greet each other and also say goodbye to each other with uh, saying sicheres Arbeiten. So it's, it actually means wor work safely as a kind of greeting for your goodbye or for, for anything. So yeah, let's hear Steven say sicheres Arbeiten. Sicheres Arbeiten. <laughs> yeah, great. Is that good? Yeah, that was good. Okay, thank you. See, you did a good job. You're, so work safely, Stephen. Yeah, work safely. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Marco. I, I uh, it's been a pleasure, and um, um, we'll meet each other again soon. I'm I'm going to uh, Denmark next month. Um, so, and then I'll be there again in March for the European Robotics Forum. So uh, perhaps uh, we'll be able to meet up in person again there soon. Yeah, that would be great. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Marco. Thank you so much. <laughs>